The census is about the stories within the numbers. This is a promotional video from the U.S. Census Bureau. We have to reach every single person, 300 million plus in the country. The next national census is scheduled for 2020, and it's being closely watched by voting rights advocates who worry the Trump administration might move it in directions that over or undercount some Americans. Also, subtle choices in the wording of the census can have huge consequences for who is counted and how it shifts American voting districts. But disputes on how a census is taken are nothing new. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we'll look at the controversies over the first census taken in England in the 19th century. Working at the Census Bureau, by definition, means you're part of history. You're taking a snapshot of the country that centuries from now people will be looking back at. And that really is invigorating. Later in this show, the power behind the portraits of Queen Elizabeth I and the story of her annual visits to small towns under her dominion. But first, the modern census came about in England in the early 19th century, and it changed the way people thought about their identities and their relationship with government. Catherine Levitin is a professor of European studies at the College of William and Mary. Her book, A Cultural History of the British Census, Envisioning the Multitude in the 19th Century, looks at how and why census-taking became a fact of the modern era. So Britain's first census really kind of came out of the crisis of the 1790s. So the British were fighting with the French during the French Revolutionary and then the Napoleonic Wars. And the British were worried about how many people they had that could fight. And they were worried in general about dissent and pressure for reform that was happening in Britain sort of in response to the French Revolution. So in the British case, at least in the early stages, people were not saying this is going to lead towards political representation or more people voting or anything like that. Later on, the democratic implications of the census became very, very clear to many people, but that was not something that people talked about in the 1790s. So tell me about that first census in England. Who did it and how was it accomplished? The way that the first census worked was there was a several-month period when the government basically sent a letter out to various local leaders and justices of the peace and so on, who were then supposed to gather the statistics within their own parishes. And they went around and counted how many houses there were in their parishes, how many people lived in those houses. They distinguished between men and women. Um, They didn't gather a lot of very specific information at that stage. The early British census was considered controversial. Why? Well, there had actually been an attempt to take a census several decades earlier, and there had been opposition to that among the landed elites who did, at that point, understand the democratic implications of census taking. So landed elites basically said, we don't think there should be a census because the census suggests that everyone is worth the same amount. It suggests that it's every person is kind of valued the same. And that was not the way they understood the social hierarchy in 18th century Britain. They actually believed that the social hierarchy relied on some people being worth more. So they saw the census as having kind of dangerous equalizing implications. And some people were opposed to it because they saw it as intrusive. They didn't really understand why the government should be coming and asking questions. So if Americans understand their census now as helping to change the makeup of congressional districts and Mm -hmm. apportion federal dollars according to where the populations are. How do you think the early um, British government saw the usefulness of the census in the 1800s? There came to be more and more uses for the census. People came to understand it certainly as connected to representation and also to what you're saying about federal dollars. Basically, the government needs to know how many of different groups there are in order to provide amenities for those people. So many people in 19th century Britain embraced the census because they started to understand how it could help them. 
there were people in 19th century Britain who were opposed to the census basically because they saw it as recognizing that they were losing power. So what the census showed in 19th century Britain was a continually urbanizing, industrializing population. And people who preferred a more traditional kind of society, who were looking back nostalgically to 18th century society, which was more rural and more hierarchical, more agricultural, didn't like the census because they thought it basically made their declining power very public. And this idea that the government was going to provide amenities to people who were members of large groups was, of course, distressing to people whose groups seemed to be dwindling. You've written that at some point they began to realize the census was a tool for building coalitions. How did that happen? Well, once the census became more public, people started to see themselves in that census and started to see the census as a tool for recognizing their own connections to other people. So the government got lots of requests from individuals, from groups, from church congregations, from all kinds of people saying, please add this question to the census because that's going to help me recognize you know, these other people who I'm affiliated with. Usually the government couldn't do this because they didn't have room or the resources. It was very expensive to do a census. And if you start, you know, adding more questions and it becomes two pieces of paper instead of one. But the fact that people saw the census as this tool is very interesting, especially considering that there weren't very many other tools for doing that. Things that we have today where people are able to kind of form communities through social media, for example. But the fact that people saw the census as this tool Um, is very interesting, especially considering that there weren't very many other tools for doing that. Of course, it was very different um, kinds of technologies that were available uh, that we, you know, things that we have today where people are able to kind of form communities through social media, for example. Um, You can see the census as kind of a tool that did the same thing in a period when there weren't very many technologies like that. At some point, they added a question about religion. When was that and why'd they do it? In 1851, they added a question about religion, and they really, that was really inspired by a kind of concern over the effects of industrialization and urbanization. The idea that people were not going to church or affiliated with any religion in the same numbers than they had been as they had been earlier. So the idea with asking about religion was really to kind of find out what the need is. If there's all these churches that, you know, are overflowing, then maybe you need to build more churches. So again, it had to do with kind of, you know, money and amenities. So what the census of 1851 ended up showing was that the dissenting Protestants were growing and that they were very active churchgoers, while the Anglicans were um, sort of in decline proportionally. And this was very upsetting to Anglicans who believed that this state church should be the dominant one in Britain. It, It backfired on them. It backfired on them, yeah. I mean, it wasn't necessarily the same exact people who had promoted the census and who then were upset by it. They then proposed a different way of doing the religious census in 1861. Instead of counting people who were in particular churches on a given Sunday, they suggested asking people on the actual census form, what is your religious affiliation? This resulted in such a outcry that they had to give up the question entirely because in that case, dissenters realized that their numbers would show a decline, essentially because dissenters had a very high proportion of of churchgoers, while people who didn't go to church, if you asked them, they would say, sure, I'm Anglican. That was sort of the default. So that would have made the numbers seem very different. That different method would have made the numbers seem very different. And their campaign against the 1861 census of religion was successful. The government gave up the question because it was worried that it would undermine the census altogether, that people would refuse to fill out the form. What about what the census revealed about the urban poor? You write about overpopulation in the poor. So the census, one of the things that the census um, got tied up in almost immediately were debates about overpopulation. So this is this idea that the population would expand more quickly than the food supply would, and ultimately that would always provoke a crisis. And many people in 19th century Britain really thought in terms of this notion of scarcity, this notion that there's not enough food to go around, there's not enough employment to go around, there's too many people. So the census showed this really rapidly expanding population. And so that was something that could provoke either pride or anxiety. And 
many people who responded to the census saw this extreme population growth as, as something to be worried about. And many times they promoted emigration. So they, they suggested that unemployed people would be better off if they emigrated to some colonies so that there would be more jobs to go around in Britain itself. And of course, they also looked at gender in the census. And you identified something they called the surplus woman problem. What was that? Yes. So in 1851, the British census asked about marital status for the first time. So it had always asked about men and women. But in 1851, they also asked about whether people were single, married, or widowed. And one of the results of that census, one of the things they found was that there were large numbers of unmarried women in Britain. Um, and that was usually defined as women over 20. This caused a lot of anxiety, partly because middle-class single women had very few options available to them in terms of employment. They were not usually educated for professions. It was basically assumed that they would marry. And if they didn't marry, it was assumed that they would remain dependent on on male relatives, on their fathers or perhaps on their brothers or something like that. And there were very few jobs available to them. Now, this was something that had been already sort of present in popular culture. That's part of the reason there's so many novels from the 1830s and 1840s about governesses because that was one of the only positions available to a middle-class single woman. Um, In 1851, people became so anxious about this very large number of single women and sort of how they were going to be contributing to their society that some people started to propose that all of those single women or many of those single women should emigrate to the colonies. And some people actually came up with these interesting schemes where they, you know, plan to use thousands of ships in order to ship 500,000 women off to the colonies all at once. Places like Australia, New Zealand, um, Canada, usually it was those that were where most British people were going. Mail-order brides. Well, sort of, although it was a little bit unclear whether when they got there, the point was for them to get married, which certainly was a possibility because there were more men than women in those colonies, or whether they were going to get work when they got there, because there were also more jobs available there for women. Other people, however, in Britain said, well, this is ridiculous. There's no reason to ship them all off. Why don't we just educate them and you know, provide more career opportunities for them? So this can be seen as one of the things that sparked the feminist movement in Britain in the 1850s and 1860s. At what point in the British census taking in the 1800s did they begin to sort of count the Irish and count the far-off colonies? Yes. In 1841, the British did begin asking about birthplace on their own census within Britain. And one of the reasons they were interested in that was because there had been massive Irish immigration to England and Scotland, basically because there were industrial jobs available in England and Scotland. Ireland was not really industrialized and there was really dire poverty there. So Irish people were leaving in large numbers. And debates about the Irish in Britain came to be tied up in debates about urban poverty and debates about political reform. It was really central to um, British kind of anxiety about the effects of industrialization. In general, as the 19th century progressed, many British people saw their empire, which was growing quickly, as a kind of worldwide way of thinking about race and about the Anglo-Saxon presence. They were interested in thinking about how many people in particular colonies and in the world were people of British descent, or even more particularly sometimes of English descent, and how many people weren't. As we in America approach the next census, what have you learned about studying this era with the British census that you now think about when you think of the American census? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that one thing I've learned is that censuses always have the potential to be controversial because they are very important. They do have very, very important results. The government uses the census to do all kinds of things. And people are very aware of the way that questions are being asked. Things like how you identify race or religion um, have often been very, very controversial um, and certainly continue to be so today. So I think this is really relevant to current political events. We hear a lot of um, people saying things like, you know, predictions about a particular year when the United States is going to be majority minority and stuff like that. Even those terms, that that very idea that you can define people as being in a majority or minority, those come out of census taking and particularly out of the 19th century. And the idea that you can 
define people as belonging to a particular group, that comes out of census taking as well. Catherine Levitin is a professor of European studies at the College of William and Mary. Her latest book is A Cultural History of the British Census, Envisioning the Multitude in the 19th Century. Coming up next, The Portrait of a Queen. For scholars of art history, a portrait can reveal a lot about a person, time and place, and perhaps for no one more than Queen Elizabeth I of England. Elizabeth came to power under troubled circumstances, her father unable to produce a male heir, but went on to become one of England's longest reigning monarchs. Michelle Mosley Christian is chair of the art history department at Virginia Tech's School of Visual Arts. And she says Queen Elizabeth accomplished this remarkable feat, partially with the aid of a carefully controlled program of state-sponsored portraiture. Elizabeth I was the daughter of Henry VIII, and that's from his second marriage to Anne Boleyn. Elizabeth was Henry's only surviving heir, so through that quirk of fate, she becomes the Queen of England and rules from 1558 until her death in 1603. As a family, the Tudors are, of course, some of the most dramatic of the English monarchs, mainly due to Henry's marriage. And this plays directly into the ways in which Elizabeth really wants to portray herself to her subjects and to her court. She really does have to break new ground for several reasons. The first and most obvious, of course, is that she's a woman, and female monarchs ha have not tended to rule very long. But more than that, it's important for us to remember that she's also the supreme head of the Church of England. And as a woman, that's an entirely different role that her father had played, but one that has to be refitted for her. So she uses, especially imagery, I think, as a really important way for her to exercise soft power. So she presents herself as strong, as capable, as marriageable and healthy and prepared to produce the next Tudor heir, which as we know never really happens. The way that this is figured in the images is that Elizabeth is posed very formally. She's almost always shown from the front. She's very, very richly gowned, which befits her status. And she has a very sort of flat white face. It's very static, not a lot of expression. She's more of an idea than a person. The portrait's representing what Elizabeth wants us to think about her rather than what she really is or what she really might be. It's really unlikely that the larger scope of her subjects would have the ability to encounter these portraits. They were kept pretty much within the framework of noble venues. Elizabeth is another groundbreaker in the sense that she was really one of the first tutors to most effectively use more revolutionary media like printmaking. And we see quite a lot of prints, so just ink on paper. They're portable, they're affordable, they are able to reach a wide audience, and they also were ways that Elizabeth was able to disseminate her portraits or her image, the state image, to a much larger group of people. She was so concerned with the total control of her public image that she's actually shown as fairly young throughout most of her life, even when factually she's a, a little bit of an older ruler. Scholars call this the mask of youth. That said, there was a portrait that was found in about 2010. Um, North Carolina Garden Club discovered in their possession uh, a portrait of Queen Elizabeth I, which has since been authenticated, which shows her as a much older wrinkled woman. And that is certainly an outlier. These images probably did exist, but this is some of the only evidence we have of her as an older woman that seems to be a little more accurate to the way that she would have naturally aged. 
Michelle Mosley Christian is Chair of Art History and an Associate Professor of Early Modern and Medieval Studies at Virginia Tech's School of Visual Arts. Coming up next, The Queen's Progress. Queen Elizabeth I also took annual trips to smaller towns outside of London as a way of projecting and maintaining her authority. And it was the event of the year, with entire populations coming out to greet the Queen. John Adrian is chair of the Department of Language and Literature at the University of Virginia's College at Wise. He's working on a book about the Queen's progress, and he describes how small English towns performed for the Queen upon her arrival. That's right. She would go usually late in the summer when um, it was very hot in London, and that's when plague would flare up. So in part, the timing was dictated by that. You know, everyone wanted to get out of London. Um, but, you know, it was also uh, good, good travel weather. The roads were a little bit better, that sort of thing. But, yeah, she did it for uh, many of the years of her reign, not every year, but it was pretty much an annual thing. Remind us of the years of her reign. So she, uh, she ascended the throne in 1558, and then she died in 1603. What was the purpose of it? Was this a show of power for her? I, I think from her perspective, um, it was. It was a chance to, you know, to build popularity, but also to sort of remind people of the majesty and splendor of the throne, uh, you know, to inspire obedience and loyalty and that sort of thing. Was she the first to do this? She wasn't. Um, her, her predecessors did it as well, but she's, she's the one who did it the most. Um, she, she went on the most progresses and seemed to enjoy it the most and, and would do it even when her advisors advised against it for various reasons because I think they got, they got tired of chasing her around the countryside. How many people would come with her and what sort of pageantry was involved? <laughs> So, I mean, it, it would be, you know, sometimes hundreds of people. It would be, you know, her closest advisors. Uh, it would be courtiers, her entire household servants, ladies-in-waiting. And then there were also special officials that had to help just with the logistics of, you know, figuring out the route, figuring out lodging, procuring food for everybody. And so there were, you know, just a long train of, of wagons and things like that. Even before the Queen arrived at Sandwich, they sent 100 um, soldiers in full uniform to escort her towards the city. And when she got to the edge of the city liberties, a very brightly colored delegation from the city welcomed her, gave her the city mace, uh, and then she, you know, sort of as if surrendering authority to her, and then she handed the mace back to them. Um, and then cannons were fired, guns were shot off sort of in celebration. Um, and then they would, they would escort her through the city streets. People would be, would be jammed up on both sides of the streets. All the citizens would come out. Um, there were ceremonial moments where gifts were given. She was given a 100-pound gold cup. Um, and then she was escorted to um, the best house in town where she was going to lodge for the night. So that's just sort of a typical entry into the city. You have written that some of her subjects, who were the wealthier ones, who would put up the queen and others of her entourage, actually went bankrupt. That, that's right. It was an incredible honor to be, to be chosen by the queen, but it meant that you had to put forth a lot of your own resources. And, you know, sometimes people built, you know, built buildings in anticipation or, you know, redid their house. Certain, then there were other, other expenses of food and gifts and, and that sort of thing. And so um, some people actually, you find in the records, they um, came up with creative ways to, to sort of beg off having to host the queen, um, you know, so that they just so they wouldn't incur the expense. When the Queen visited Bristol, they staged an elaborate mock battle, which was part of a local power play, really. Tell me about that. Right. So, yeah, I'm really interested in um, looking at the Queen's visits to different cities from the city's perspective in terms of what they did with the opportunity. And obviously they're going to they're flatter her and profess their undying loyalty and that sort of thing. But they also used the occasion as an opportunity. And when she visited Bristol in 1574, um, the Northern Rebellion had happened five years previously, but there's a lot of anxiety about other rebellions happening in other parts of the kingdom. Rival authorities, uh, the church, the Council of the Marches, were trying to sort of use that as a pretense for siphoning off some of the power of the Bristol City Corporation. And so uh, Bristol actually had its own, its own militia, and I argue that the mock battle was really about 
sort of showing Elizabeth that it did have the military firepower to prevent rebellion. Uh, a lot of a lot of historians view the period as a time of burgeoning nationhood, right? In the late 16th century, you know, you've had the establishment of a state church. You have uh, political centralization that the Tudors are bringing in. And you, you just have a lot of patriotism with the defeat of the Spanish Armada and that sort of thing. And so that seems to be the trajectory. Yet at the same time, you have people who still have their primary identity from their county or their village or their parish. And I think that's sort of like like nowadays, you know, the more global we become, the more we want to pause and, and, and hang on to those things that, um, you know, we don't want those things to be swept away, I guess, in the globalization process. And so you find a similar dynamic in the period. And I think that the, the progress is a good window into that because it would seem to be a nation-building exercise, right? The queen's coming around. She's projecting her authority. Everyone's professing their loyalty. It was a tremendous opportunity for a city of, you know, a few thousand people to host the reigning monarch and to have her, you know, under its roofs for, you know, upwards of a week or two in some cases. Cities seemed to be the place that had pretty pretty well-formed identities, right? They had walls around them. They had a, a local elite that ruled. So you have this, you know, the coming together of the national and the local. I think that's what makes it such an exciting moment. It's so interesting to listen to you describe this period in the 1570s, I wonder what is comparable in our country today. Of course, we have congressional mm-hmm. recess. Well, I, I do think the, the the dynamic is in a lot of ways similar when any time an important political figure visits their constituency or, or just, just sort of, you know, a presidential candidate makes a tour and go, you know, goes to places that are kind of off the map. You do have the same the same kind of blend, I think, that I'm I'm describing with with Queen Elizabeth's visits. On the one hand, it's an opportunity for the for the politician um, to you know sort of uh, create an image for themselves and to pr- project their their authority or their popularity out there. But then again, it's an it's an incredible opportunity for the place that's being visited. And so uh, you know if that you know if if, if the same sorts of things that you would do if a political figure visited your town. You know, you'd, you would celebrate and draw attention to local industries, you know, athletic accomplishments, important buildings, those sorts of things. You, you, would, you would want that person to see those things, and you might even try to, um, you know, try to Im- influence their policies or, or change how they, you know, how they see your town or something like that so that they could be an advocate for you going forward. And so you, you very much have the same thing going on in the 16th century, even though it's, you know, it's a different government form and that sort of thing. Does today's Queen Elizabeth still go on a queen's progress around England? Uh, not in the same way. I mean, they, the royal family does um, get around a lot more than Queen Elizabeth ever did. So, yeah, it remains an important part of the British monarchical tradition, I think, is that they mix with the commoners as often as possible. And that's, that's sort of expected of them. John Adrian is chair of the Department of Language and Literature at the University of Virginia College at Wise. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Every time you get on an interstate, Think of Syracuse, New York. In the 1950s, the city planners there took advantage of a fad for constructing highways to eradicate what they saw as the city's biggest slum, the 15th Ward. Today, I-81 brings Syracuse's suburbanites into and out of the city's core with ease. But the neighborhood it replaced was never the blight they had alleged. Ask former residents of the 15th Ward. They say it was like any other community, with one key difference. It was predominantly black. To get built, interstates like I-81 and interstates across the country relied on the expert opinion of urban planners and geographers. That leaves today's social scientists a tricky history to reckon with. Now two Old Dominion University professors 
looking at how we study common spaces and hoping that asking the right questions can help undo the damage of the past. Here's with good reason associate producer John Last. If you think of geography as more than a little boring, you aren't alone. Just listen to Tom Chapman. He's a professor of geography at Old Dominion University. For the longest time, geography spent much, 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 too much time studying the details of a particular landscape, like barn types. It was boring. Even for him, this kind of geography just wasn't interesting. So when Chapman was planning his seminar in field studies, he decided to take a radical approach. We took students out into the field and we armed them with iPads. And I told them that you're going to play the part of the flaneur, the wanderer. What I wanted them to do was wander about the neighborhood with no particular purpose in mind. And if you noticed something about the neighborhood in terms of seeing something, smelling something, hearing something, wanted you to record that on the iPad. It could be the smallest thing to the largest thing. It's more of a radical way of doing geography, much more disorganized, but by its very nature, it has to be. As aimless as his students' wanderings may have been, Chapman's radical style has a purpose. You see, Old Dominion University sits in the middle of a neighborhood called Lambert's Point. And to understand why Chapman is doing geography this way, you have to understand how the university came to be there. On a map, the first thing you'll notice is Norfolk's Southern Coal Terminal. It's the largest coal port in the Northern Hemisphere. The noise from the plant was one of the first things that Chapman's students noticed. But go just a dozen blocks to the north, and big, beautiful houses line the Lafayette River in suburban Larchmont. In between these two worlds is Lambert's Point. Even though it never had a community pool, a baseball diamond, or even regular bus service, for decades, Lambert's Point was a vibrant center in Norfolk's African-American life. Here's Edwina Wilson, a longtime resident of the neighborhood. I don't know, it was, the, it was just something about Lambert's Point that every, everybody raised everybody else's child. Mm-hmm. It was, a, you know, as they said, it took a, what, a take a village to raise a child when that's what happened in Lambert's Point. In 1930, the College of William & Mary bought an elementary school at the northern edge of Lambert's Point. And there it established its Norfolk campus. It was this tiny school that would grow into Old Dominion, the booming urban university with 20,000 students spread across more than 20 city blocks. And in this transition from tiny college to vast university, it was Lambert's Point that was going to lose out. In the 1960s, ODU was newly independent and growing and they made a decision that would define the neighborhood for the next 40 years. Instead of expanding to the north, into the predominantly white Larchmont, they began aggressively buying up property in Lambert's Point. The effect on the community was devastating. Here's what another resident, Sharon McCord, said when she was asked what changed about the neighborhood since her childhood. To me, everything, I think the community is gone. Because um, ODU has pretty much come in and pretty much taken over, so there is no community to me as far as I can see. I mean, it may be a few people here and there, but it's not a community mm-hmm. at all. Today, ODU students play soccer where local residents once worshipped. They sleep on the site of an old women's club, but many of them have never heard of this history. It was that fact that inspired Chapman to send his students out into the neighborhood. And now that initiative has given birth to a new project. I'm not the type of person when I go uh, to a city that wants to see the ruins, that wants to see the great spaces. That's Avi Santo, a professor of communications at ODU. Together with Chapman, Santo is leading a project called Mapping Lambert's Point, aimed at communicating the story of Lambert's lost landmarks 
to the wider public. These places were not historical landmarks to anybody other than people who lived in the neighborhood. And they were historical landmarks not because they were, you know, pristine works of art as buildings, but because they were really important spaces. Sometimes these are stories about places that are completely innocuous. Look at a Google map of this neighborhood and you'll notice two things, the coal yard and the university. But look at Santo's map and you'll see stories marked by pale blue pins. Stories of the woodyard where local winos would meet, or the Jewish grocery that catered to blacks and whites alike. Stories of a community that began long before the university. These stories may seem small, quaint even, but for Santo, this is about correcting the balance of power. At the end of the day, the people who have power in our society have the power to shape narrative. And so it's absolutely essential for any community to be able to share its stories, not just with itself and its next generations, but with outsiders. You can see these stories for yourself. Just head to mappinglambertspoint.org. For With Good Reason, I'm John Mast. It's been over a year since officials finally acknowledged the water supply in Flint, Michigan, is contaminated with lead. Jason Sawyer, a professor of social work at Norfolk State University, says small communities like Flint often have the hardest time defending themselves from environmental threats. He had his own experience with this when he moved a few years ago to the tiny community of Fulton, just outside of Richmond, Virginia and soon learned they were also facing a big threat to their drinking water. Jason, do you remember how long it was after you arrived that you heard about the mountain of coal ash nearby? So this was very interesting because it was three months after I got there, and I got a call from an advocate from outside the community who said, do you know what's going on in your backyard? And I said, please tell me. And... She said that one of the landfills in the neighborhood had been depositing coal ash into one of the landfills there. This was a this was a neighborhood where there were four landfills within a two mile radius. This particular landfill was about a half a mile from the community center itself. Just dumping a little coal ash here and there. Uh, no, this was eighty five thousand cubic yards of coal ash. And they were storing it on the site at the time. What it looked like was a huge mound of black ash and soot that was higher than the landfill itself. How were they going to use it? They were going to layer it with debris? Yes. There's two different types of landfills. One is a municipal solid waste landfill, like the trash that you have in your house goes into that type of landfill. The particular type of landfill that this landfill was, was a construction and demolition debris landfill, which was demolition debris from construction sites. And it doesn't have a smell. But what they were doing is they were putting the waste into the landfill, and then they were layering it with the coal ash mixed with soil. So when, when they were approached about what they were doing, they said, we're not depositing it in the landfill as waste. We're using it as structural fill. Where does coal ash come from? Coal ash is the waste that's created from coal after it's been burned in power plants. Is it hard to get rid of? Um, yes, Be- because what we're seeing right now is policy hasn't really caught up to what uh, really needs to happen with this. There's issues all over the country with this kind of waste seeping into their water systems and into their soil. How toxic is it? What's in it? It's very toxic. It's got lead, it's got cadmium, it's got chromium, it's got arsenic. Uh, It's known to cause neurological diseases. It's known to cause cancer. It's known to cause heart disease, developmental disabilities. It's really bad stuff, particularly when it starts seeping into the water system. And this was just a couple years after there'd been a national story about a huge break in a pond that was holding coal ash sludge in Tennessee. Yes, yes. I read that a billion gallons spilled all over everywhere. Absolutely, and it contaminated both of the rivers that were there, and it affected 300 acres. People lost their homes. 
The Tennessee problem was coal ash mixed with water and held in a pond to contain it. Mm -hmm. This was just a big pile of dusty coal ash residue, right? Right, yes. Is that just as bad? It can be because what it does is it gets into the air. And the communities that are generally affected by this are low-income communities, often communities of color or rural white communities. And the first thing that we were actually concerned about was the air quality. So we originally called the Department of Environmental Quality to talk about the air quality piece of it and then realized that it could actually seep into the water system. And is that a typical big problem, coal ash on the ground seeping into the water supply? Well, localities are also able to get water permits to deposit the wastewater into rivers. What does that mean? You can just dump water, coal ash-laden water into the... It's, it is treated. It's treated coal ash-laden water into the river, but advocates don't necessarily trust the fact that they're able to, to treat the water in a way that, that makes it environmentally sound, because it's known to kill fish and wildlife. Did the residents of Fulton, when you told them about the coal ash pile, were they alarmed? Folks were very alarmed, and they responded in a way with lots of questions. One woman in particular I remember talked about how her her child had ha started having issues with skin rashes and asthma. But there were also factories um, that were now long dormant that had been smelting factories and others mm -hmm. that may have left contaminants in the yeah, ground. Absolutely. Yes, that's true. So these community problems aren't isolated, right? And the community has a history already. This was one of the urban centers, well, just outside the urban centers of Richmond during the Industrial Revolution. So there were smelting factories there. The ground is contaminated. When we do community gardens, we had to have raised beds because of how contaminated the ground is there. So we don't want to leave out the fact that this part of the city was one that, that has struggled with um, environmental justice issues before. If I can scoot ahead to what became of the mountain of coal ash, were you successful? Was the community successful in getting it removed? Yes. We were able to, to negotiate with the landfill to get the coal ash taken off the site. And the community was with us every step of the way. So that was a huge success for us. The downside of it was actually that this coal ash went to another landfill 25 miles away oh, in, in a community that was not as engaged, 25 miles south of the city of Richmond, in a little place called Chester, Virginia. When the flint lead in the water problem happened, did it immediately make you think about your experience with Fulton? It did. It resonated. It was very familiar to me. Of course, Flint wasn't a coal ash problem. It was lead in the pipes leaching mm -hmm. into the drinking water. Right. But it also had to do with commodities and money and trying to save money. The reason why they switched their water source is because they wanted to save money, right? And the reason why the East End Landfill Company was willing to put this toxic substance in their landfill is because they got money for it. These companies need a way to to dispose of these chemicals, right? Garbage is a commodity, right? Waste is a commodity. And what was the lesson you drew from this? Was it poor communities are often the path of least resistance? Um, it, it was a little bit different than that. I think that my main lessons were that when community people are able to build long-term relationships with each other and take care of those relationships, they can begin to mobilize the gifts and talents that they have to be able to say, not in my community, that's not going to happen. And that's what happened in Fulton. One of the things that I learned was that everything that a community really needs to survive and to thrive, they generally already have. There are people who have real talents and gifts in those communities. There are associations of people and social networks of people in those communities who, who can build power. The relationship piece is really where it starts. Jason Sawyer, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm just very grateful for this opportunity.
Jason Sawyer is a professor of social work at Norfolk State University. Coming up next, a conversation about homelessness. On a single night in January, roughly half a million people experienced homelessness in the United States, meaning they were sleeping outside or in an emergency shelter. My next guest, Deborah Schlieff, is a professor of sociology at the University of Mary Washington. She and her students conducted a survey about how people in her community feel about the homeless and found their conflicting attitudes. In 2011, we began a comprehensive strategy to end homelessness in the United States. It's called Opening Doors. Uh, and there are several elements to it. One of one involves veterans. And so there's been a real push to house the veteran population of the United States, I think, because it's just horrific that many homeless are veterans, right? That just should not be you've served your country and now you're homeless. And that population has declined, I believe, by 10 percent. So while you said there has been something of a dip right now, it's still a very big problem across the country. Yes. Where in particular? Large cities tend to have the most visible homeless populations. Poverty is a problem. We're finding housing for people will still remain poor um, and it will still be precariously housed. And so at any given time, the people that we count will not be homeless in a month, but other people will be. People are homeless, of course, because they don't have a place to live. But there are also individuals who don't have adequate work, don't make enough to pay for housing. We have homeless individuals, of course, who have chronic health issues, who have mental illness, who are substance abusers, um, who have criminal histories. But we also have to remember that there are many individuals who, who are substance abusers, who are mentally ill, who, are, who have criminal histories, who have a place to live, right? Those are not the causes of homelessness, but they do tend to um, be exacerbated by homelessness. What do you think are societal attitudes toward the homeless? Do you think that we think if they just tried harder, they could fix it for themselves, pull yourself up by the bootstrap? Or do you think there's a lot of sympathy and willingness to reach out? So there's a lot of sympathy. There are a lot of individuals who'd like to help, right? They, uh, and, uh, it was interesting in our survey, they said, how can I help? I don't know where to go in my community. What can I do? But then there are also individuals who do have those um, stereotypes that, oh, you know, most of the homeless are homeless because they're mentally ill. Um, I see them all the time. They're dirty. They haven't had a shower. You know, they were talking to themselves. They're clearly crazy. And I remember um, conversations I often had with my father, who was very conservative, right? He, you know, that was definitely his thing. Well, people want people want to be homeless, right? I could see people from my office window who who seem really happy. They want to kind of live this life where they are free and they have, you know, they can drink if they want to, they can act strangely in public, but they really are, are unconventional and they don't want to have to live the way that other people live. And that was definitely his idea. There's still a part of us that still thinks, yeah, but I work hard. And, you know, if you, if you just made the least amount of effort, you could do that. We realize how difficult that is, right? We realize how, how much working at a minimum wage job will not get you to that place. So I think we struggle with those conflicting notions about how this how this problem should be alleviated. Where did the homeless people used to live in large cities? Is it a recent phenomenon that places for them to have a roof over their heads disappeared? Until relatively recently, there were places to live. They were called single-room occupancy hotels, and many uh, large cities had big structures where there were there was at least a room where they could receive mail, use a telephone, uh, have a community, right? Other individuals that they could that they could interact with. A lot of those were destroyed, demolished in the urban renewal of the 80s, and then those individuals had nowhere else to go. So we're talking about people again who were marginal, who maybe were alcoholics or did drugs, but may did did well enough to have jobs, right, and to make enough money to survive. Uh, this is also actually connected to. It is connected to the Industrial Revolution. It's actually connected to the post-Industrial Revolution, where many of the jobs that people held disappeared. So if you worked in a factory, as long as you showed up sober, you could, you know, do whatever you wanted on your free time. But you can no longer do that in our service industry where we have drug testing and things like that. So many of the jobs that men in particular could do 
Uh, construction would be another example. They still exist, but there are fewer of them, right? And, and, and men used to be able to afford a place to live. They can't anymore. Um, I'd compound that, though, with the economic policies of the Reagan administration, uh, which also meant that many individuals who had families, uh, who had jobs, nevertheless could no longer afford a place to live when low-income housing was removed from the urban landscape. So that was an unusual time where we saw people who typically always would have been housed, who are just sort of at the bottom of the economic ladder, children who aged out of the foster care system, or people who just lost their jobs, right, and could no longer then have first and last month's rent. And we've never really recovered from that. What do you think we should be doing most when it comes to those structural solutions for the homeless? It is it is still a pretty thorny problem because the longer term solutions, which would impact not only the homeless, but the precariously housed, you know, will take a lot longer, right? They're a lot less politically popular. Um, things like more and more low-income housing, right? Bringing back the single-room occupancy hotel. Who wants that in their town? In the small city and the small towns that I'm familiar with, they're just not building apartments, let alone low-income housing, right? They're building million-dollar condos. Um, so it's it's something that you have to get individuals interested in doing and building that kind of housing. Um, and then also, you know, having jobs that provide a living wage. Deborah Schlieff is a professor of sociology at the University of Mary Washington. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Allison Quantz is our senior producer. Elliot Majersik is our producer. John Last and Kelly Libby are our associate producers. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. And our intern is Georgiana Reed. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.